Take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and find Matthew chapter 7 as we continue our journey uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, We're looking at our 23rd message now uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and the title this morning is one of the most disturbing passages in all of the Bible. One of the most disturbing passages in all of the Bible. As you find your place in your copy of God's Word this morning, I know you may be wondering about this. Uh, You may have heard the name Billy Sunday. He was known as God's acrobat. He was the Billy Graham of his day. And uh, he would do acrobatics during his messages. And so this morning I needed some room for some uh, backflips and acrobatics. Do you believe that? No. But I tell you how I will be like Billy Sunday this morning. Somebody said to Billy Sunday on one occasion, said, Billy, you're rubbing the fur on the cat the wrong way. And Billy said, well, the cat just needs to turn around. I'll rub the fur on the cat the wrong way this morning. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Jesus said in verse uh, 13 there, Enter by the narrow gate. Think about that phrase a minute. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Father, I think of the psalmist who prayed on one occasion, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And God, that is my prayer for today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book, Is Hell for Real or Does Everyone Go to Heaven? We're blessed to hear from some of the world's greatest evangelical scholars, men like Drs. Al Mohler and J.I. Packer. 
all of the contributing scholars insist that regardless of the changing times, the church must not abandon the traditional biblical teaching on hell as being everlasting punishment and separation from God. As they point out, to abandon a key doctrine like hell from Scripture has an unfortunate ripple effect on all other doctrines. For example, if there's no hell, then what are we redeemed from? The whole redemption, of, uh, the whole redemption story of the Bible seems to be jeopardized if there is no hell. If there's no fear of an everlasting punishment, then essentially we must ask ourselves, why did Christ have to die such a terrible death if it were not to save us from something awful? And we could add to that, why does the church do missions if people don't need to be saved from anything? I want to say up front that especially in the introduction to this message, I'm going to be indebted to many of the writers in that particular book. Now, as a way to set the table for the message this morning, listen to a portion of the preface by Paul Engel, who is a senior vice president for Zondervan Publishers. He writes, and I quote, Popular media took note recently when one of film's most recognized and celebrated stars passed away. As a successful actress since the age of three, Elizabeth Taylor had virtually defined Hollywood's golden age. Embodying an image of beauty for a generation of moviegoers. In later years, even though her many marriages became fodder for the late night talk show host, she became well known for her humanitarian work on behalf of HIV and AIDS victims. Sinner and saint, convert to Judaism, Taylor likely never professed faith in Jesus Christ. Dare one ask, is she in hell Today. Two months later, the world's most notorious terrorist leader was killed by a team of U.S. operatives in Pakistan. Osama bin Laden had eluded capture for nearly a decade. Issuing periodic threats against Israel and the West by tapes leaked to Middle East news outlets. As the founder of Al-Qaeda, his criminal resume included numerous mass casualty attacks, including the 9-11 plane crashes into the Pentagon and the World Trade Center. Reviled and revered. A spokesman for radical Islam, bin Laden likely never professed faith in Jesus Christ. Is he in heaven now? And you and I could add another paragraph to Engel's words here. This past Friday, the man known as the world's greatest boxer, Muhammad Ali, was laid to rest. But where exactly is his soul resting? You see, back in the 60s, he converted to Islam. He turned his back on Christ. 
He renounced Christ and his Christian upbringing became a devoted follower of Islam. And as far as we know, he continued in that religion up until the very time of his death. Dare we say today that his eternity has now begun in hell. Folks, not only do we say that, but we must say that if we're going to be faithful to the words of Jesus Christ. Now hopefully all of the above examples follow the example of the man on the cross, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, that in his dying moments he turned and he looked to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom." He had what we would refer to as a deathbed conversion. And we could certainly hope that all of these three examples that I've just mentioned, maybe somehow or another in the last moments of their earthly life, maybe they too turned to Jesus Christ. As Engel concludes in the preface to his book, asking such questions about people's eternal destinies tends to make us very uncomfortable. Even more so perhaps when talking about those closer to home, a beloved relative, a former co-worker and business associate, a longtime friend of the family looking too closely into someone's fate after death is today considered tasteless at best and even hateful at worst. A book entitled, Who Goes There? A Cultural History of Heaven and Hell found that our culture's outlook on the afterlife has evolved to the point where most now assume that the majority of people end up in a place or state of eternal bliss. Only a very few, the Pol Pots, the Hitlers, the child molesters, the pyramid scheme architects are thought to be elsewhere. Engel continues, to speak of hell is precarious, but not to speak of hell is even more precarious. We owe it to fellow sinners to tell them the unabridged story of God's love and forgiveness. That way they too can better understand their desperate need of forgiveness and experience the joy and the peace that is only found in knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Now folks, as we begin this section of Matthew 7 this morning, we see that it is a section of structural contrast. There's two gates. There's the wide gate and the narrow gate. There's two roads, the narrow road and the wide road. There's two kinds of uh, trees that produce two very different kinds of fruit. There's two different kinds of professions of faith. And as we'll see next week, there's two different kinds of builders. In each case, the two ways may look very similar initially or maybe only have minor differences. But in the end, they are seen to have two very different kinds of outcomes. Now what we see in our text this morning is that not all, not all ways lead to heaven. 
Contrary to what our culture says today, not always lead to heaven. Not always lead to God. In fact, there's only one way. Now, first of all, this morning, I want you to notice that Jesus is concerned that men make the right choice. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Look at those first words there. They form a command. They're in the imperative. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Here Jesus is talking about gates that no doubt open up the traveler to two different, very different kinds of roads. Our culture today says we need to just live and let live. Let everybody make their own choice and mind your own business. Just live and let live and don't try to give counsel to anybody. Jesus couldn't have disagreed with that philosophy more. He says, enter by the narrow gate. He says, don't go there. Don't go to the wide gate. Don't go there. It leads to destruction. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? He is essentially saying there is only one way to heaven. And at first glance, if you look at that one way to heaven, it does not appear to be the most inviting or the most attractive. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Folks, that sounds narrow and that sounds exclusive. And indeed, it is. But the wonder of it all is that God has provided any way to begin with. He's provided a way. He's provided one way. And that's the wonder of it all when you think about it. Folks, what do we call that? We call that grace. Somebody has defined grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a pretty good definition of grace, isn't it? Because the Bible points out that you and I, in our sin, we've gone our own way. We've turned our back on God. We're alienated from God. We're dead, in our, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And if we die in that state, we will be eternally separated from God. I want you to listen to what Jesus said about that in Luke chapter 16 because Jesus told a story there about two Two men, a rich man and Lazarus, and they ended up in very different places. And I want you to listen to what Jesus said about that. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Folks, do you hear what Jesus is describing there? Now, folks, if there were no such place as hell, do you realize this would have been a wonderful opportunity for Jesus Christ to have cleared up the matter once and for all? In this story, Jesus points out a number of things about hell. He points out the fact that after you and I die... We still remain us. Our identity still remains and we know where we are. The rich man knew exactly where he was and Lazarus knew exactly where he was. Identity remains after death. And not only does identity remain, But the rich man knew that he was in Hades. He was suffering. He was in torment. And he cried out for some relief. He cried out that somebody might cross over with even a single drop of water uh, on their finger that they could touch to his tongue because he said, I'm in agony in this place. He knew who he was and he knew where he was. And Jesus pointed out it was an eternal state because he said there's a great chasm fixed so that no one can cross over to the other side. Now surely nobody would cross over from heaven to hell if only to help somebody there. But Jesus says nobody's going to be able to cross over. But again folks what I want to point out to you if there were no such place as hell if there were no such thing as suffering in the afterlife this would have been a wonderful wonderful place for the Lord Jesus to have clarified the matter. He affirmed a place of agony. There's no way that the very Son of God would have allowed such misunderstandings to remain about such an important matter. There is only one logical conclusion we can make to that and that is that hell is indeed as bad as the Bible says. As Jonathan Edwards wrote on one occasion, consider that if you once get into hell, you'll never get out. If you should unexpectedly one of these days drop in there, there would be no remedy. They that go there return no more. Consider how dreadful it will be to suffer such an extremity forever. It is dreadful beyond expression to suffer it even half an hour. All the misery, the tribulation and anguish that is endured for all of eternity. 
No wonder Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. And it's a command. It's like the command we find in 1 John chapter 3 where John writes, And this is the command of God that you believe in the name of God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Folks, I want to return a moment to the thought I made a moment ago. How kind and gracious that God has provided a way at all. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Paul said in Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, 23, he says, the wages of sin, the paycheck for life of sin is death, eternal death. But he goes on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What makes anybody think that they deserve heaven? What makes anybody think that they deserve salvation? We don't. God's grace has made a way where there was no way. God would have been perfectly just to allow mankind to continue down the wide road to destruction. Do we get angry at somebody when they say to us, don't do that because if you do that, you're going to suffer the consequences. And we say, I'm going to do it anyway. And we do it and we suffer the consequences. Do we look at the one who warned us and get angry about it? Do we get angry that they warned us? Of course not. Well, God has warned us. God has warned us. He has told us what to expect. And yet man sinned anyway. Who is to blame? You are to blame. And I am to blame. Because each of us went our own way. Yet God is the one who has provided a way. Not many ways. But a way. A single way. All roads, all ways do not lead to heaven. All roads do not lead to God. In fact, all of the ways but the way that God has provided lead to death and hell. Now folks, I realize that this disturbs sensitivities today. It is indeed rubbing the fur on the cat the wrong way. I know that. Men today want to gloss over such realities. The first major challenge to the New Testament view of hell came from a church father and a theologian known as Origen. Origen taught that everything and everyone would ultimately be reconciled to God. He reasoned that God's victory could only be complete when nothing was left unredeemed and that hell would not be eternal and punitive but rather temporary and purifying. Origen's teaching was condemned as heresy at the church council of Constantinople in A.D. 553. 
In the 18th century, Enlightenment skepticism took center stage. Philosophers began arguing that hell only needed to be viewed metaphorically, not literally. But who in the world would be afraid of metaphorical flames? Then during the Victorian age, preachers wanted to save their congregations, not necessarily from hell, but rather from the fear of hell. The Victorian God was seen as this kind, benevolent God who would never, ever, ever judge anybody for anything. By the end of the 20th century, the biblical doctrine of hell became an embarrassment to liberal theologians and Christians. Other evangelicals by the 1970s and 80s, including one of my all-time favorites. Now, I disagree with him vehemently on this issue, but he is one of the most wonderful conservative Christian writers that, that pastors love. And that's John R.W. Stott. John R.W. Stott and others opened the door up to speaking of hell in terms of annihilationism. What they said is hell is real, but those who are cast into hell, unbelievers who are cast into hell, they might suffer for a short period of time and then just sort of poof, they cease to be as though they never existed. Annihilationism. The annihilationist argues in part that it does not seem in keeping with God's sense of justice and righteousness that he would punish a man eternally for sins committed temporarily in a human lifetime on earth. They argue that the words describing hell as eternal refer to the fact that the entity hell is in fact Eternal. The flames of hell are eternal, but not those who end up there. Now folks, as attractive as such a view might be, again, it flies in the very face of everything Jesus taught about the subject. It would seem best to me to conclude that the one who came from heaven and returned to heaven to prepare a place there for those who know him, that is the one who is the best qualified to, to be able to speak accurately about eternal things and eternal destinies. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. He went on to say, for wide is the gate and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Now I want you to notice how this gate is described. The gate is wide. Immediately everybody sees this gate and it looks appealing. This gate provides a way in life, a road in life that would seem to be easy. And there are many travelers going through this gate and they're traveling on that wide road. You can see the masses there. You can see the crowds there. Which means if you go through that wide gate and get on that wide road to destruction, you will never be lonely. There will always be plenty of travelers moving in that direction with you. 
But Jesus warns us, don't be fooled. Because the outcome of that road leads to destruction. Folks, listen closely to what Jesus is saying here. The easy way in life that everybody is going is not the way to go. Jesus says, choose the narrow gate. It is harder to find. It is more difficult to travel that road. And there are few traveling companions. In fact, you might find yourself alone sometimes on that road. And so right away, somebody might ask themselves, then preacher, why in the, way would I, why in the world would I want to go that way? Because the answer is, at the end of that way is eternal life. Eternal life. The point of this contrast is easy to see. You can follow the world and you can encounter very little resistance and very little difficulty. Most of us despise conflict. We're kind of like water. We choose the path of least resistance. We want to love everybody and like everybody and affirm everything. And we want everybody to like us. There's something about human nature that we abhor conflict. And we just kind of want to blend in. But Jesus says, don't go that way. He asked on another occasion a penetrating question. He said, what is it going to profit a man if he should gain the whole entire world and yet lose his very own soul? Make the right choice. Make the right choice. Secondly, Jesus is concerned that men would be discerning. Pick up reading with me in verse 15. He says, beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Chuck Swindoll tells the story about an unforgettable evening when a friend of his ate dog food. Contrary to what we might expect, he was not starving nor was he being initiated into a fraternity. Rather, it happened at an elegant physician's home in Miami, Florida. The dog food was served on delicate little crackers with the wedge of imported cheese, bacon chips, and an olive topped with a sliver of pimento. The, the deed was done not by an enemy, but by a friend. With friends like that, though, who needs enemies? She had just graduated from a gourmet cooking school and she wanted to put her skills to the test and see if she could make dog food tasty enough that everybody would like it. And Swindoll said he had a friend that went back over and over and over again and got serving after serving after serving. 
Now fortunately in good humor, when she came clean and told everybody what she had done, everybody just got a good laugh out of it. And they congratulated her on her culinary skills. But folks, do you realize there's an analogy in that? There's, a, there's an illustration in that about what happens every day and every week spiritually. Every day and every week, phony preachers and religious hucksters peddle their goods, their morsels on unsuspecting listeners. They may have enough of all authentic ingredients to make the poison glide down gently. Now think about the way it connects to the verses that just came above. False teachers can seduce you into entering by the wide gate while all the time making you think that you're on the narrow road. Jesus said there are false prophets who will come. Make no mistake about it. And you and I need to be very discerning. He said there are false prophets who will come. Now I want to tell you about something about Jesus. Jesus doesn't give false warnings. He doesn't put up a sign saying wet paint if there's no wet paint. If Jesus puts up a warning, it's a warning indeed. And Jesus said false prophets will come. The history of Israel was replete with false prophets who would prophesy peace, peace when there was no peace. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, when I leave, you better be on guard for yourselves and the flock because after me, there are going to be ravenous wolves who will come and who will devour the flock. False teachers look fine on the outside. They'll be in sheep's clothing. They look gentle and harmless. But inwardly, the Bible says they're like ravenous wolves. Think of the damage a ravenous wolf wreaks on a flock of sheep. False teachers seem appealing. As commentators point out, it's not so much in what they do say as in what they do not say. They may emphasize the love of God and at the same time never talk about the justice of God or the judgment of God. They may talk about heaven but not hell. They'll talk about faith but not repentance. They'll talk about laughter, but never sorrow over sins. They'll talk about victory, but never trials. They'll talk about self-esteem, but never sin. They talk about coming to Christ, but they never talk about counting the cost. I like what Dr. Kent Hughes says about this. The false prophets avoid preaching on such things as the holiness, righteousness, justice, and wrath of God. He avoids preaching on the doctrine of the final judgment. He fails to emphasize the fallenness of man and the depravity of man. And he de-emphasizes the substitutionary atonement of Christ. I would add also the false prophets of the day try to make everything in Christianity about us. They try to make it man-centered rather than God-centered. 
I think of a well-known pastor who was interviewed on Larry King Live several years back and he indicated that he never preaches on sin. He said, Larry, I don't want to talk about sin because people feel bad about themselves enough already. Larry King asked him, so is Jesus the only way to be saved? And he responded, well, he's my way. And he's the way we talk about at my church, but who am I to say that he's got to be the only way for everybody else around the globe? Are such words dangerous? You betcha. Jesus said false prophets will come. And they'll preach other gates, other roads, other ways besides what Jesus said. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do the things that I say? Now somebody responds by saying, preacher, surely nobody would follow false prophets. Oh really? Quite to the contrary. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, Timothy, the day will come when men will reject sound doctrine and they will accumulate to themselves, they will heap to themselves teachers who will scratch their itching ears. God said through Jeremiah the prophet, the false prophets prophesy lies and my people love it so. Isn't that a sad indictment on human nature? Jesus tells us to be discerning. You will know them by their fruits. Listen to a man, what he says. Is he uplifting Christ and only Christ? Christ said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Listen to a man. Is he lifting Christ as the only way? And and look at his life. Look at your life. Now don't pull out one little single shortcoming in your life and focus on that. But look at the pattern of your life, your lifestyle. John said in 1 John chapter 1, if we abide in the light and say that we love God who's in the light and yet we walk in darkness and the tense there is very significant, it's that we walk in the darkness as a way of life. It's the trajectory of our life. It's the pattern of our life to walk in darkness. John said we lie and we don't know the truth. Listen to a man's teaching. Is it faithful to this? Look at his life. Look at your life. Does our teaching and our life bear witness to the truth? Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Church, be discerning. Make the right choice and be discerning. Now, if those words aren't alarming enough, the next point we look at is is perhaps even more disturbing or more challenging than those words. Thirdly, I want you to see that Jesus is concerned that men are truly converted. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, not a few, many, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in 
in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness wow folks you read those words and those words make you sit up and take notice don't they Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. As John Stott says, this confession of faith is remarkable on four counts. First of all, it is polite. Christ is addressed as Lord. Secondly, it's orthodox. Because while the term Lord at that time could mean nothing more than sir, like you would say to a superior, in this context it's clearly a divine title as it's applied to Christ. Christ is Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Thirdly, the confession is fervent. It's not just Lord, but it's Lord, Lord. And lastly, it's public. What would we say to such a person? Welcome aboard. Welcome to the church. Isn't it great to be a part of the family of God? When in reality Jesus says such a person is far from the kingdom of God. And he'll say depart from me. I never knew you. Parents, don't rush your children down the aisle to be in such a hurry for them to say, Lord, Lord, before they even know what they're doing. For that matter, don't rush anybody down the aisle too soon. A person can make an orthodox profession of faith and yet be lost. It's not that open confessions are not important. They are. Paul said in Romans 10, 9 and 10 that if we will confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Confessions of faith in the New Testament are important, but they're not sufficient on their own. You can say Jesus is Lord. You can say all the right words. You can join a church. You can be baptized and yet be lost and on your way to an eternity without Christ. You can even do mighty deeds in the name of the Lord and be lost. Look at verse 22. What in the world are we to make of verse 22? What in the world do we do with that verse? First of all, it may be that such persons were allowed to do these amazing works that they did by the power of God. They didn't know God, but God allowed them to do these works by the power of God. You can write down Balaam in the Old Testament. He was a false prophet and yet God, he was going to speak falsehood and God put truth in his mouth to proclaim to the children of Israel. False prophet and yet God empowered him to say the truth. Caiaphas in the New Testament. 
Certainly not a friend of Jesus. He was an enemy of Jesus. And he prophesied that, that one man would need to die for the sins of the nation rather than the whole nation. He was prophesying of the death of Christ and he didn't even realize it. Secondly, these amazing acts done may have been accomplished through Satan's power. Jesus said that false Christ and false prophets will arise who will show great signs and wonders so if so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Thirdly, it may be that these claims of what these people have done are bogus claims. Lord, we've done this and we've done that, and yet all of the miracles they professed were just faked and contrived. So how in the world am I to know? Jesus says in verse 21... The necessity of doing the will of God. In other words, the life change that is characterized by the new birth. What would that life change look like? Just go back through the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Is that what your life looks like? The rest of the things Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Does my life reflect that? It's clear in verse 23 that these people didn't reflect that. They didn't reflect transformation because Jesus says while they said all the right things, they were workers of lawlessness. Again, Jesus is giving us a warning that everything can look right on the outside and yet the heart be unconverted. Several years ago, I told you the story of Roy Regals, better known as Wrong Way Roy. His wrong way blunder in the 1929 Rose Bowl is sometimes cited as the worst blunder in college football history. Roy played for the University of California at Berkeley, and they were playing Georgia Tech. Now, I'll spare you all the details, but suffice it to say, Roy picked up a, a fumble by Georgia Tech, and he was hit this way. And that way, and this way, and that way, and spun around. When he finally thought he had caught his bearings, he ran for 69 yards in the wrong direction. The Georgia Tech players and coaches were jumping up and down on their bench cheering. The head coach of Georgia Tech turned around, told them to sit down and shut up. They were going to make Roy wonder why they were cheering for him and they might make him stop. And the Georgia Tech head coach said, every step he takes in the wrong direction is a step in our favor. His own player tackled him on the three-yard line. From then on, he was known as Wrong Way Roy. Sad indictment on his life because even as other coaches and opponents said, Roy Regals was probably one of the finest players to ever play the game of college football. It's my prayer that through these words this morning, if you're heading in the wrong direction down that wide road that leads to destruction, it is my prayer that these words would tackle you before it's too late and get you turned around the right direction.
Don't be shoveled out into a Christless eternity and forever be known as wrong way Bill, wrong way Bob, wrong way Jill, wrong way George, or wrong way whatever your name is. And folks, we're not just talking about a game. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about your soul. Enter by the narrow gate, even if nobody else follows.